Hello and welcome to the Xenothesis podcast. This is episode 48, in which we're discussing chapter 11 from part 3, Chukai Chutak, from book 2, Adulted Rites of Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis Trilogy. My name is Richard Acton, and I'm joined, uh, as always, by my co-host. Michael Glinka. Hi, everyone. Wow, this this um part just disappeared to be honest like the previous part was really long and there was a lot of chapters that were quite long so we had like mm. one or two episodes it was like i think one chapter uh, just one chapter going through one chapter but this time it just went yeah it's a relatively short yeah it was a good chapter though i mean part i, I think uh, uh the next part is is shorter still oh really part four home yeah okay uh, or at least has fewer chapters to see what the lengths are. <laughs> yeah, and then book three. Let's see what's going to mm-hmm. happen. Oh, I'm looking yeah. forward to it. <laughs> hmm. Yes, that's uh, yeah. I'm interested to see how how you'll take uh, book three. That's uh, oh. some interesting stuff that changes up. Oh really? Oh, <laughs> oh, you tease, you awful tease. I really want to read it. <laughs> Uh, yep. Well, uh, uh, before we get onto that, let's uh, talk about your predictions for chapter eleven, the final chapter. Sure. So, um, I thought that considering the how the last chapter ended, that basically it's going to continue from, and the idea is that yeah, the consensus is decided that if there are to be Akjai humans, so pure humans, Akin must be the one to lead them. Uh, lead the way to create a world for them so he will have to learn the means or the methods to populate a planet different planet than earth because obviously earth is going to be stripped down to barely nothing after the the ships mature and Mm -hmm. so obviously he's going to be undergoing some sort of training um well not just training but i guess in longer terms um at some point, he probably will have to go and speak to the humans and be like, yeah, there's an option for you guys. You can survive by yourself, yeah, but different planet or something. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so that's a, an interesting point, right? He has to actually persuade the humans yeah. that they can go and have their Akjai branch on Mars? It, I, I, I suspect it's probably Mars. Uh, I don't know. It, um, they have, Venus. Yeah. it could be either mm-hmm. or, but you know, like it's still pretty crazy. I think, um, I think the actually or someone may have indicated that they thought it would be easier to do Mars. Oh, really? At some point. Okay. But I, I forget that they'd considered both. But I think, and I have a vague recollection that they were favoring Mars. Hmm. But the question is then, um, because in several billion years, four billion years or something. The, uh, the our sun is going to start to extinguish itself, so it's going to increase the size. So how, I don't remember which planets are gonna be um, sucked up into it. Uh, definitely Earth up to Earth, but is Mars also going to be? I think Mars will will be still outside of that radius. I think it kind of basically comes up to us. Uh, okay. Venus and, and Mercury get absorbed, uh, but uh, we're kind of borderline. Um, but you know, definitely cooked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if we don't cook ourselves now, it's... Yeah, that's, that's without the greenhouse effect. Yeah. <laughs> mm. 
but yeah, we've we've got time. You know, yeah, we've got plenty of time. Years. It's funny. I read somewhere a uh, long time ago that um, some scientists or someone they mm-hmm. were supposed to talk to a Japanese government about something, and they were told not to mention um, about the the the, uh, the sun. You know, uh, eventually, in several billion years, eventually, to um, uh, that's going to you know absorb the uh, the Earth because that would mm-hmm. affect the potential stock prices on the market or something. Those lines. I don't remember where I read it, but I thought it was so ridiculous that it <laughs> there might be some sort of seed of truth in. It. <laughs> mm. And I had a, a vaguely re- related anecdote about someone who. Uh, misheard someone say in about three billion years then the sun will expand and encompass the the inner rocky planets uh, Uh uh, up to about earth and someone said i'm sorry did you say three million years Uh, and then it's like three billion oh okay right yeah (laughs) oh oh, yes because it's going to affect me (laughs) exactly right it's definitely going to have profound personal uh, impact (laughs) yeah oh my goodness Oh, I have more time to all the things I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay, so we think uh, the consensus is going to go in uh, Akin's favor, and we're going to get some Akjai humans, and he's going to have to figure out how to terraform a planet yep. and persuade them to go there. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we only, I think, get to the first part about the decision to uh, have a human Akjai. Yeah, it's the only tears like it only says in this chapter. Oh, you know the the consensus is, but they all believe that you know their humans are gonna kill themselves anyway at some point. But hmm. it's Akin's decision whether they're gonna go do it quickly or in slowly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an interesting attitude they have there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Should we uh, jump into the summary? Yeah, sure, sure. So chapter 11 begins with Tikachak and Dekyakt uh, being around Akin, I know, when he wakes up um, after the uh, exhaustion from being connected to uh, through the Uloi and trying to follow up with the consensus uh, meeting. Um, mm-hmm. And during Akin's nap, the Agjai Uloi went to pick them up and now was actually, in fact, embracing Dichan. Uh, sorry, not Dichan, the Kjacht. Hmm. Um, T tells uh, Akin that this is the way that Uloi teaches about uh, Uloi things that are not ready for. So basically in the book it was saying that it was just holding it like in a sort of almost embrace, very tight embrace, so that it almost felt that the uh, Kjacht cannot escape um, hmm. that embrace. Well, I think that's kind of what um, it did to Akeen in the yes. previous chapter as well, yes. right? It was kind yes, of yes. holding him and uh, you know connecting him to the network, even yeah, exactly. though he might have otherwise kind of uh, flinched away, as it were. That's exactly uh, correct because T tells Akeen that he shouldn't be able to do, like, shouldn't be capable of doing so. Um, mm. But the Uloi calls Akin a sub-adult male, and that's enough of an explanation for it. Like, oh yeah, Akin is a sub-adult male. Yeah, that's 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 enough, you know, for like he can handle it. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. 
Akeen there was able to do the same thing to to them, right? To Tiki yes. Trek and Dekiat when yeah. um, the Akjayu lawyer had done that to Akeen previously. So yes, a, yes, that's correct. Because when he was a... telling them the old experiences, he did exactly the same thing. He mm-hmm. he forced them to you know feel what he felt uh, mm-hmm. until uh, like the very end. He until he finished. So that's that's a good point. I completely didn't think about it. Yeah, and I think he talks about having like learned that skill almost without having known that he learned it. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. perhaps his ability to to use it is connected to the fact that he um he's had these experiences of being taught by the Uloi that he would not normally have had. Perhaps. And I guess also because he matured faster. Yeah, yeah. Plus his interaction with the the consensus and what that feels like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Experience, man. Experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the conversation continued between Akin and Tikshar about whether Tikshar will help Akin with the project, no, the project of repopulation of a planet, uh, preparation of a planet for humans. And although Tikshar is wasn't sure though, um, because there was still the uncertainty whether it will be a male or a female. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, it likes the Dekyak, so wants to stay close to it and although Akin was also is also fond of Dekyacht um uh and Tikjak tells Dekyacht also wants Akin because uh it finds it uh, it says he's the most interesting person it's known um you know Akin suggests for he to become a female because then they could be together but because Akin himself cannot see Dekaya being with Dekaya without Tikjak Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. this conversation is more of like T doesn't know what it, you know, what it wants, right? Like, what it isn't sure what's going to happen, and mm-hmm. they both seem still very un- uncertain about the whole thing. They they quite like the the dynamic with Dekiat, I think, but yeah. there's you know T still doesn't know what what's it, going what's to happen. What's it to, it. to be, yeah. and Akin is kind of. And I'm still coming to terms with this whole like wanderer thing, yeah. And still coming off the previous uh, you know difficulties it's had in its relationship with T, or he's yeah. had in its relationship with T. That's correct. That's correct. Hmm. Um, it's it, it is here and says that you know the feeling that Akin could feel something else other than irritation or confusion towards Tikuchak was still surprising him, you know. He still wasn't sure if he really wanted to have it as one of his mates, but at least there wasn't hate or, as you said, yeah, here I... notes repulsion anymore. Yes, I wasn't sure if it was ever really like hate per se, right? It was. I think it was always this. I don't know, almost like an extreme version of awkwardness of some kind. Uh, there was just this this weird, um, you know, dissonance this uh between them yeah yeah they were kind of repulsed by one another but they also they didn't want that right it seemed like they you know they wanted to be like intimate like ordinary and carly siblings but it just it never happened they they couldn't do it yeah Yeah. it was a hmm. They miss. It's interesting that they we had this conversation a few times now that Hmm. the fact that don carly could not fix it well, I mean, mm. they could fix it now with the Uloi, but the fact that they couldn't fix it earlier on is what really confuses me in particular, because 
Yeah, it's it's interesting in particular that um, Nikanj, for example, didn't fix it. Yeah, or intervene in some way if it exactly. could have done because I feel like even if the consensus from the Owen Kali had been we want to isolate Akeen, um, you know, for the purposes of creating someone suitable for being this human advocate, I suppose, yeah. ambassador. Uh, yeah, it it seems as like. I don't know if Nakanj would have gone along with that if it was, you know, detrimental to Akan and Akin and Tikachek. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know. It just feels to me with the beings that are capable of genetically modifying whatever the hell they want, not being able to figure a, sort this out without like the presence of a sub-adult Uloi, not just not a, an adult fully trained Uloi. It's for me is a bit confusing but then again i don't know maybe there might be part of the uloiness in them that can't be modified maybe the uloi organelles cannot be like modified by them like you know it's it's something that like they can't access you know like in the systems that even though they have access to all the systems except for that one particular and they cannot just do it they have to still follow up follow on with the natural cycle of the of the beings, I would say. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what the impediment is there to having an adult Uloi fix it exactly. Maybe it's something to do with the um, just the, the 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 way that the adult Uloi would uh, like react to it. Almost the um, like they're kind of extra sensory capabilities, right? They and they're you know, super sensitive. They perceive all this stuff very. Yeah acutely maybe it was just like really unpleasant and they wouldn't be able to effectively experience it and and sort something out from it because it would just be like too much noise i don't know uh whereas someone who doesn't have that same degree of like mature senses can handle it i I don't know but then again an uloi i mean shouldn't be capable of like it's they are capable of manipulating them to like not feel anything or feel pleasure so why wouldn't they just Mm. you know like shift and be like yeah you feel pleasure with like oh you acceptance between each other so like i don't know it just feels to me that there has to be some part of the onkali that even the onkali cannot change like the very, very basic, the most core thing, and I think it's something to do, probably to do with the Uloi organelles in them. They are, yeah. Hmm. Or the I mean, they, organelles. They do seem to have some limits. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. But then, yeah, going back to the chapter, um, that's when, you know, after having the conversation and, you know, being surprised that it's still. There's still no, there's no this repulsion anymore. Akin wonders if the decision has been made and the Kayat calls to them to join the Uloi. And as Akin got up, he noticed that T is staying behind. And, you know, after a brief conversation, it figured, you know, T says, like, it's actually afraid of what the Agri could do to them because if it wanted, you know, it could hurt them and if it found necessary to do so, you know, like, if it's if it's necessary to teach you pain, then yes, there you go, you know, Uloi will not stop from that. And so Akin sat beside Tikachah and waited until it was ready to join them. And it, in the book, it was really nicely written. It's like, there's nothing more patient than uh, Onkali or the Uloi. And so they would wait as long as it's necessary. 
Um, and mm. yeah, after some time when TikTok got, you know, build up the the courage in him and it um, both joined the Oloi. And Akin was determined that the decision would be made to help humans. And here's an excerpt from the book. Um, I think it was very important that you know it's 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 read out here because mm -hmm. it really encompasses what what was you know the decision made. He had been abandoned to the resistors when they took him, so that he could learn them as no adult could, as no oncali born construct could, as no construct who did not look like quite human could. Everyone knew the Resistors' bodies, but no one knew their thinking as Akin did. No one except other humans. And they could not be allowed to convince Onkali to do profoundly immoral, anti-life thing that Akin has decided must be done. The people had suspected what he would decide, had feared it. They would not have accepted it if he had not been able to stir confusion and some agreement among constructs, both Onkali-born and human-born. They had deliberately rested the fate of the resistors, the fate of the human species, on him. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I think an important uh, uh, aspect of their decision, and it, it's interesting that they seemed aware of the likely direction of where know, this is going to go. Would be concluded here. Yeah. Yeah. They were just very uncomfortable with that, which is. Hmm, yeah. It, strange. Yeah, it's it's a bit. Um, I would say the fact that they could predict that this may happen mm -hmm. is in the first place, I would say like, oh, I don't know. It's just if you can predict that something has happened, why did you allow it to not happen in the first place? Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty, uh, like that's a question you could apply to many things <laughs> <laughs> in the real world. I know. Absolutely. I know. I know. But you would suspect that, um, yeah, I guess it, the fact is that they had to see what the result of a male, human-born male construct would be. Um, I wonder what the, I honestly think, like, wonder what the hell is going to be a human-born Uloi like. If Akin is messed up like this, Uloi is going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not saying anything. You, mm. Kind of, uh, I, yeah. I thought I may fish you a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I suspect my my silence there may have tipped my hand already. But. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah. when Akin asked why was he chosen as the leader, the IJ told him that he is more Onkali and more human than anyone before. A contradiction of his own. And he was the most likely person to choose for the resistor, either a quick death or slow, long death. And even though Akin argued that maybe they will survive, the IJ was so certain that they won't. Um, very certain, because... But because they're IJ, how could they de deny their own security of an IJ group, of a pure group? Um, the IJ Uloi thought that it's cruelty that they will be given tools to create civilization to ultimately destroy themselves. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, sort of choice that the Oankali made there, right? They've made someone who is... Uh, as capable as they can of seeing it from the, the human perspective, yeah. but also equipped with the kind of Oankali perceptual and communication skills to, mm -hmm. to convey that to the rest of the group. They've kind of created Akin as an instrument uh, for the Oankali to view humanity through. Yep. It's, uh, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So yeah, but the chapter so the chapter ends with Akin saying that no matter what, he cannot not do it. Humanity needs to have a chance to survive by themselves, being themselves. Mm. And although Dekak wants to help, the Akja tells it to find a female name mate because uh, the Akja Uloi tells Dekak to find a female mate because Akini will not stay with them. Tikuchak isn't sure of what will happen, but whatever it is, eventually it will need to make a decision. And the Akja tells Tikuchak to learn the skills that you know that Akin is going to do uh, also learn, you know, terraforming a planet to help Akin, even though eventually T may not end up helping him, but it's a good thing to learn. Hmm. And Tikuchak couldn't argue because you know at the end of the day, and all I had the control over the rest, you know, and the the, the fact that they could manipulate and s- tell you to do something without, and you would find pleasure in doing that. And you know the idea that that idea. That the Oloi can do that disturbed Akin and made him look forward to wandering again. That's the word the chapter ends. Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's an, a couple of interesting points in, in that last section there, though, both Akin's discomfort with the Uloi manipulation, uh-huh. uh, which is an interesting one, because that's certainly, uh, it feels like a human aspect of him, right? Because the Owen Carly yes. seem pretty comfortable with that. Um, probably because of the Uloi manipulation. <laughs> yeah, because they are they're doing it, not the one receiving it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and you know the the as it were the male and female uh, Oankali have been subject to the Uloi manipulation for yeah. sufficiently long that it's probably genetic at this point. Basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, yeah, Akin's still not entirely comfortable with that arrangement, which uh, makes sense. Absolutely. Mm. And then there's Tikuchak. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the fact that not being... It, it's a crazy idea that you're not sure what you're going to be. And then yet you're being told to like, oh, you should do this, this, and this. And maybe it will help, but we all know what's going to happen. Tikuchak is going to end up with Akin helping Akin. It's just like... Mm. Although the, the whole um, narrative about uh, Tikuchak's decision and so on is quite an interesting one, and it, it serves as a, a a bit of a mirror to uh, you know someone who might be uh, trans or uh, otherwise having some kind of gender identity mm-hmm. uh, or intersex or something like that. It's it's a an interesting uh, parallel to it because in T's case, T has a lot of agency in it right there's there's a lot of choice for t that's correct uh, which is uh you know to varying degrees the case in uh what we you know actually uh see in human sexual identity you've got uh people who have gender dysphoria of the kind of i'm in the you know body with the wrong sex and then you mm-hmm. have people who are just uh with a kind of a, a, a different type of gender identity uh ambiguity as it were you know mm-hmm. people, people who are not uh, feeling they're in the wrong body per se but just not feeling strongly identified with the particular gender true but for me like i'm just thinking about the whole um the biology behind the the in in all on Kali like the picking up mm-hmm. the, the the gender right because mm-hmm. it feels to me like in humans 
physically in the, you know you can't really you know suddenly make an x x chromosome into xy chromosome that's just not going to happen um mm-hmm. just talking about pure biology so i wonder what do the how the oncology's biology in the cell the sex chromosomes look like like do they have a triple egg yeah that would probably make mm-hmm. sense I mean, they probably have we discussed it a little bit before didn't we about various different sex determination processes yeah in animals. we'd have um, we know, have it's not always chromosomally determined that's and, correct and yes so on. yeah um, and so you know refer to our early conversation about that yeah that the conversation i don't remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I, I don't know exactly what we touched on in that before i'm but, sh- yeah we've touched probably a lot about it, but just the fact that yeah, yeah. i mean although there's an interesting um like to, to think about the parallels some more, right? We've got, uh, so, you know, humans don't have much choice over the biology, right? Yeah. Like we can do hormonal and surgical interventions, but those are still, you know, suboptimal in the quality of the result that they deliver for the most part, right? They, yeah, it's not... just like f- healing the symptoms, not the, the, you know, trying to fix the symptoms, not the underlying cause, basically. Uh, I mean, to some degree, but also just, even if you think of it in terms of uh, fixing a symptom, it doesn't necessarily like the quality of the surgical result, as it were, can be a tricky thing. And yes, absolutely. Like the risks associated with it, mm-hmm. right? It's uh, uh, it, there's a lot of risks associated with surgery, whatever they are, and whether or not you get you know full use out of uh, whatever your uh, results are from that surgery is is pretty varied. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's. Uh, and also with with hormonal stuff, right? The the degree to which things like puberty blockers and hormonal treatments yield good results is is pretty mixed, and they have interesting side effect profiles. Mm-hmm. So, unless you know, you get the whole debate about like how early should you start with these things, about the degree of certainty that people have about whether or not they want to transition, because you can often get a better quality uh, result, as it were, if you intervene earlier, um, but then you know you have less certainty about the the uh, whether or not that person has like necessarily uh, made the informed choice if they're yeah. making it super young, right? So yeah, there's a lot of really interesting, complicated stuff uh, in that space. I mean, to be fair, I don't know, like this 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 question, and I think it'd be better left for for us at least. Mm-hmm. We can't really yeah, answer it in any way. Um, but I feel like within the next few decades, it'll be either or. We either will be like, yeah, the early intervention is what it needs to be happen. If that's what you know, uh, but then one cannot predict. I'll be honest, when um, that gender dysphoria would appear, or it, uh, you know, when the person would start yeah, feeling it's- it. Or it would be opposite way and be like, what we've been doing the last few decades is absolutely completely wrong, and there's there's different approach that has to be taken to to actually address it. And but mm. this is going yeah, to it's, be yeah, it's an it, it, it's an area that's very like hotly politicized. Yes, and the quality of the scientific work uh, as to like what's the actual best treatment, uh, and you know to what degree can you actually stream people into yes, intervention now is good for this, and no, it's not. Like there's a, a lot of very heated political debate about what we should do uh, and what how can we best respect people's choices and all the rest of it and and it's uh, you know, oftentimes the political heat ends up being counterproductive to actually 
qual- like quality medical science for what what can be the uh, uh, the most effective treatment for for everyone. That's, uh, and that will be a diverse set of interventions. I think that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the biggest issue now is that the like how, as you said, politicized is this this issue. If we put enough funding to a proper, you know, studying of you know psychology and you know uh, into the, these issues, we would probably have a better answer to it without the whole like you know people immediately grabbing pitchforks and mm-hmm. going or going against whatever you know has been done. Obviously, science is not always right, but for most of the cases, oh, yeah. this is the most probably the the most accurate um, tool we have to mm. to actually address things like this. So, but no. and to yeah, as as you said, it's probably uh, like we can't settle it. But uh, I think the the thing I'd like to point people to is uh, Alice Drager's book Galileo's Middle Finger. Yeah, you mentioned this book quite a I lot. Mentioned yeah. this before. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it has a good uh, sort of how can you actually. Uh, how, did, how things happen when the science is wrong because the science was often wrong in the past mm. about many of these things, but like how to productively handle the scientific study of these things and how to make sure that your activism in these spaces is informed by good science mm. uh, and all the rest of it. So yeah, that's a, a, a book worth reading for anyone interested in that uh, subject area. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, to be honest, but going back to tea, I just wonder, if, mm-hmm. like, are you really, because since the chapter ended, so sort of, we can sort of discuss this, but like, I wonder mm-hmm. what the next, what the result will be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, if anything, uh, what's going to happen is what the AGJ, it's going to happen, what the AGJ always said, basically, Akin is not going to stay mm-hmm. with them, Akin is going to be wondering, you know, doing whatever he he can to uh, you know terraform the planet, whereas T is uh, as the AJ told Dekiak to find a female, so T is going to be a male, and mm. uh, that's you know, and then maybe eventually one of them, either Dekiak or all three of them, will go and help Akin after mm. some time. Yeah, just occurred to me like T has it considerably better than most people in a similar situation in the human scenario right because their biology is already equipped to handle, handle this yeah. a transition in yeah. whatever direction uh, it, it's interested and headed and neo Kali society is totally fine with all of this like they're perfectly equipped to deal with it. it's normal for them so i d- you know i wonder if you if you know because they have to pick by their male or female but i wonder if they can actually become an uloi in the extreme circumstances if they could become an uloi Ah, uh, I don't know. I, it does seem as though before the first metamorphosis, the Uloi don't necessarily know that they're going to be Uloi. Uh, it's a, I, I can't remember now. But that's interesting, uh, right? In like, because hmm. um, it said that I remember that in like, for example, the female Onkali were said to have sp- been um adapted to be very quiet, like whenever um. Uh, uh, Akin was surprised by when he uh, when he was like um, just in this chapter, the beginning of this this part actually, um, part mm. three, when he was surprised by his Onkali um, mother. Um, the, the book described that they were had like like 
several more toes than humans to be able to quietly and uh, move around and to blend in with the environment to as a sort of like a means of um survival um hmm. and so i just wonder like whether uh, you know earlier on and and it did mention also that the child can become an oloi if the environment is hostile Oh yeah, yeah. It did mention that, that, that the, the, the child mm. would be could become an oloi if the environment is mm. hostile. So I wonder if that could happen in the later stages. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it's another one of these threads of the whole uh, like biological determinism, nature versus nature conversation yeah. that's, yeah, that's yeah. present throughout this this work. Uh, and uh, to what to what degree is this stuff? Uh, environmentally shaping as to what degree is it uh, a question of choice to what degree is it a question yeah. of uh, environment yeah. mm. no it's just because the reason why I mentioned them, uh, the females is because um, I might have not clarified uh, but like the reason why because there's some actual physical differences between you know, male, female and non-kali and the oloi because the oloi for mm. example had extra um, uh, appendage the arm mm -hmm. uh whereas you know there are some differences between them but i just wonder like in the late stages of let's say puberty if they could for example if the environment is hostile if they could change like they, they can during early development when the child is about to be born i think they that's mm -hmm. when they pick the other example i mean uh, the, you know they have these metamorphosis stages right yes, so they do. the male and the females i think typically just have the one metamorphosis and then the Uloi kind of have two. Where yes, they that's have correct. The subadult stage, and then the uh, fully mature version, as it were. Yeah. So I think it seems like they undergo a partial rather than a complete metamorphosis, but it it can be fairly dramatic, right? And if I remember yeah. correctly, you know, Nikanj grew its additional sensory arm yes. in its second metamorphosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So presumably the physical differences between the you know the, the larger females and the smaller males and the alloy appendages can be handled by the metamorphosis mm. processes okay yeah <laughs> i guess so i guess so yeah mm. yeah but yeah i guess maybe our since it's the end of the part i thought that maybe i'll do a short summary of the part three of just to mm -hmm catch everyone up to what's happened the last um, 11 chapters um, so the part starts on earth with Dichan and Tino talking about Akin and his wandering phase and the conversation leads to discussion about human beings able being able to reproduce and it eventually leads to the decision that Akin needs to go to Don Kali uh, onto the onto the Onkali ship to learn about the Onkali uh, and be able to create a case for Agja humans before the travel, though, there is a conversation of the broken bond of Akin and his sibling Tikuchak, and that they need to fix it, and the Onkali should be able to help. And once on the ship, Dichan, who accompanied Akin and T, introduces them to his side of the family, and the family gets to know both Akin and T, and when they feel that broken bond of theirs, the decision was made, was made to find a sub-adult Uloi to help them. Furthermore, 
Akin at the time gets introduced to the Agjai Uloi, uh, where he gets to learn everything he can about the Onkali. And uh, eventually the Agjai also learns about Akin's story and agrees that there needs to be done something done about humans being able to live and reproduce by themselves. That's when Akin is introduced to Tekyacht, a potential sub-adult Uloi partner, and its presence, very intriguing, as um, often described, helps to smooth the bond between Akin and Tikuchach. And one day Akin makes Dekayat and Dekayat and Tikuchach uh, learn about his experiences, and that triggers the consensus meeting as they go on and tell the Agjai about it, which ends with the decision, obviously, from the chapter 11 of Akin learning that the means to create a planet, he needs to learn the means to create a planet for humans to live by themselves. So, yeah, that's pretty much the summary of the part three. Yeah, pretty much wraps it up. <laughs> yeah, so we get uh, Akin's kind of adolescent phase, his kind of political mission, as it were. Uh... Yeah, it's... it's they, they, the chapter was short, but like we did, I completely forgot to be honest about the beginning of the of this part when the um, uh, the, the conversation between Dichan and Tino, and then the Tino mm -hmm. developing ulcers because um, he was sort of blaming himself and causing and purposely causing himself to be in pain for betraying the humans, humanity in general, and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was an interesting little uh, insight into Tino's character and the, the degree to which Akin is kind of perceived to be on the side of the humans. Yeah, and then, you know, the whole fact that Akin for 20 years has not, like, well, almost 20 years has not visited Phoenix at all. And, mm. and then the, the sphincter-like ship <laughs> entrance <laughs> to the ship. Mm. Um we never learn about the propulsion uh, means or the email uh, abilities of the ship. How do they do it? But hey, some <laughs> things can't be explained, I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so one other thing about uh, Akin and this uh, decision that he's making with uh -huh. Eloy, um that occurred to me before we move on to some of the topics that we've discussed in this section um is like the, the how certain the oankali seem to be that a human act will fail um and i just wanted to kind of uh, uh, connect that to um you know subjective certainty in in human society and human thinking um mm -hmm. because there's there's a lot of literature uh, out there about in many different domains uh like individual subjective certainty mm-hmm uh, not being a particularly good guide to like how accurate your predictions actually are. So I wonder if this might be an example of, of that in the Owen Kali, right? Are, are they, uh, is their certainty unreasonable? I think the Onkali look at the biology a bit too deep into the biology, mm -hmm. to be fair. Because although there is the problem the hierarchy um, versus the intelligence as they call it, the, the, the contradiction but the fact mm -hmm. is that humans have evolved to create the homo sapiens uh, have evolved to you know be a social being right and the fact mm -hmm. that is um we created civilizations and yes of course in the history of humanity, obviously, the three things that always uh, led to some sort of conflict was sex, 
money and power, right? That's just there's three things that always someone there was always one of those three reasons that led to some problem. Like either somebody couldn't keep their you know pants on long enough and that, that led to a conflict, or somebody just wanted to get rich, or somebody just wanted the power over other people. That's that's all the three things that always led to any sort of wars. And yes, in much. in the fact that you know, in the universe of the uh, Xenogenesis, we know that the nuclear war actually took place, right? Um, mm. And that's what wiped out the humanity. And we know that from a lot of examples that if that happened, it would lead to that. Like if one of the, you know, it's the whole idea of the game is not to play the game. And that's what everybody's doing is that the moment anybody's stupid enough to push that button, the he all hell will break loose. Um, but the fact is that now, but in our world, even though there are conflicts, don't, don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of hate and, you know, pain around uh, in the world nowadays. But the fact is that this is probably the most peaceful period the planet has experienced in a long time. Like, the number of conflicts is actually continuously decreasing. And... In relative terms, right? As a proportion yeah, of population. In the yeah, of course, in relative yeah. terms. Mm. No, of course, of course, there's conflicts, as I said, all the mm. time. But in relative terms, it is still mm. decreasing. So the Agjai, sorry, the, the Onkali look in humanity of that one particular event that took place without realizing that the history in general, like, led to a place at times that you know that, that we could create civilization and then be able still to like to connect the civilization one way or another doesn't didn't have to be you know like oh everybody's friends but there's still you know like hmm. connection between them like we don't at the end of the day a human would not hurt another human unless there's some sort of reason as such i would say behind it we are social Most beings and humans so again most humans. Most humans. Most humans, yeah. of course. Like, the, of but, course, they're outliers. There are strategies that you, that the you know the strategies to playing the social game that involve, uh, you know, people who will willingly hurt others. Right? Yeah. The whole uh, like psychopath freeloader problem. No, 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 absolutely. Uh, but in yeah. general, like I'm talking about the, the vast majority of huma humanity would not want to hurt another human being. Hmm. Um. As long, you know. The archivists to it, but yes, in general. Yeah. I mean, it feels like the Oankali objection to the way that humans do things is that they think it's um, like uh, not a sustainable game, right? In, in like a game theory sense. Uh -huh. right? the, the, the humans can't keep playing the game that they're currently playing and iterate it indefinitely and it not have some kind of unstable conclusion yeah uh which um, does seem to map reasonably well onto to some aspects of human society right mm. there are certain aspects of what we do that don't seem like uh, a, a game we can keep playing indefinitely with the current rule set uh, i mean to be fair i do hope that uh, at some point we will realize that we cannot continue like this because, I mean, there's so many, 
it doesn't matter what you look into it there is a fantasy science fiction dystopian fiction whatever there's so many authors there's so many historians there's so many people smart people that actually look in this like if we continue this path we need to get better than this but and I feel, although this feeling always gets um, drowned da- drowned by all the garbage that you know, the, all those evil things that happen. You know, you read in news, but I do have that little spark of hope that we will eventually change, one way or another. And yeah, I mean, there is definitely an impression that we're currently passing through a a period of. Um, uh, weird tension right yeah so in contrast to that uh you know impression we have from a lot of the statistics and you know steven pinker's you know, better angels of our nature type picture of the world yeah. being a you know currently the best time in human history to be alive and uh, along many objective measurements that's true but everyone has this uh vague sense of things are not going well and everything's a bit off uh and I, I, yeah, that seems to be a component of our political settlement. It feels a lot like um, when you look into the history of it, uh, what happened around the Industrial Revolution. Mm. I'm trying to think of the name. Of, um, I have a reference to a book to drop in here, okay. but I can't remember what the title is. Sure, sure. Uh, that, that does a, a bit of this comparison. Um, when large-scale industrialization came along, a lot of really like weird and unpleasant side effects came with it be it you know pollution and changes to working conditions and the working week and nutrition and uh, public transport and all kinds of things changed around the the period of the industrial revolution Mm -hmm. right and governance systems were just not equipped right we didn't have a modern administrative state we had like you know the leftovers of feudalism in, yes. in terms of our like governmental capabilities and you know you saw this trend towards these uh like the the robber barons right you had a, a shift in power of towards all of these kind of large corporate entities and a propensity for abusing that sort of monopoly power uh and then we had measures to counter that and we had uh a whole revolution around um like working conditions and anti-competitiveness legislation and you know a whole whole system that spanned from the creation of weekends to to antitrust regulations right yeah so a whole suite of stuff and a whole bunch of additional uh administrative capability in in government and in in companies and in legal innovations and that took several decades it did uh, through the it industrial really revolution, right? and things got pretty bad before uh, action was taken on a lot of these points. Uh, and you know, people were kind of you know on the verge of or actually involved in various revolutionary activities to get some of these reforms in place. And I think we find ourselves in a bit of a similar moment in history yeah. because the like the internet has been a step change in technology. And the way the society functions as well, because now it's... That's the thing, right? We, In the same way that the industrial era uh, led to a complete mismatch between the capabilities of the administrative state and how we, how we govern ourselves and the new technological and 
um, like private sector environment, we find ourselves in a similar situation now yeah. where we have a complete mismatch between the administrative capabilities of our state and governance organizations and the activities in the private sector and and, and just you know, of, of private individuals yep. Yep. that we, we need an analogous step change in the way that governance works and like mo- most of the problems that you see in various aspects of you know what we perceive as being mm-hmm. this sort of general malaise about what's going wrong seem to have their roots to me in in poor governance right and there's a lot of uh you know everyone kind of either blames like a you know a cabal of elites for conspiring against um you know whatever it is right? yeah that it's a you know there's this propensity for for doing that like assuming someone's in charge and blaming them right it's no <laughs> that's not that's not the problem and it's not the it's not the failure of governments or the evilness of corporate entities or whatever it's a failure of of governance uh, in the structures of the systems that we have to you know, manage the, the balance of these things it, it, it's uh, a, a like a, a failure to have the institutions that are capable of of, of uh, you know, acting on, yeah. on behalf of, of, of people. Um, so, I mean, it, there's a sense in which it's a failure of government, but it's not a failure of, like, the wrong parties in power. It's a structural failure of government. Mm. Uh, it's, it's the way that our democratic processes work. It's the way that our decision-making systems work. It's the way that our, our media and communications ecosystems work. It's, it's much more... Uh, granular and subtle than the wrong people are in office yeah and a broken system will uh, you know readily corrupt uh, someone who's trying to do the right thing right there's only so much you can push uphill against an 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 incumbent like system you know absolutely absolutely no you can get the best people possible in government and it still won't fix the fact that that there are systemic problems with the way that we're doing governance yeah to be fair, I was thinking about um, we've talked about the whole consensus idea and how often probably a lot of problems would be solved if people could feel what other people's ha- people have, right? The whole idea mm-hmm. of like if you could experience the pain, the despair other people could feel, a lot of problems probably would go away because people don't not want to cause those things. Um, but I just thinking. Physically, how would we do this? And obviously, at this moment, I can think of one way is that you no know, whole Elon Musk's um, Neuralink. But realistically, <laughs> just just realistically, like thinking about it, this mm-hmm. technology would never use would never be used for what we I would say a good for humanity. But it would be used for things like. Yeah, you wake up at two o'clock in the morning because somebody hacked your chip and now he's playing you, uh, you know, he's rickrolling you all night, or basically you wake up with a fucking ad in your head and it's just like type of no- type of stuff of nonsense like this. And it, yeah, I, I think the like the it's a bit too literal an interpretation of the the feeling one of the people are feeling. Right, it's more. Um, I think we don't need that level of technology to attain something <laughs> similar, right? One, one can, uh, one can empathize with the characters in in media. Yeah, uh, but that's then one one way of doing it. But right? Richard, that, but like, that can help. Uh, mm. What if there are people out there who are not capable of empathizing, like the empathy, right? And those people are usually a lot of you know in in 
Although, just after what you said about the whole, it's not often about the individuals who are in the power. That's what's the problem is the system. But a lot of cases, there's people in the power that like are incapable of that basic human emotion, empathy. Well, yes, that is like recursively a part of the problem with yeah. the system because those people were successful as competitors in and rose to those positions because of the structure of the current system yeah. <laughs> so yeah it's 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 you know like now but i just thought it was a, a an idea that like oh there is in, in in theory technology but we would never use it in the way that would um i mean that's that's kind of the like technology is value neutral right mm. you can use it however you see fit and it's a question of how we choose to use all of our technologies that that is the like that's the political question right that's the governance question yeah. that's the 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 uh, the, the, the market and and the uh, economy question right it's the current incentive structure for building the types of technology that we currently have is what's causing the problem right the, the the existence of the smartphones that suck up all our attention and so on and, and, and those sorts of like technological problems are not inherent to the, the existence of the smartphone right? mm -hmm. the it's the design of the software and the tools that shapes whether or not how much screen time you're spending on the device is or is not a good thing right yeah if if more screen time correlates to like greater fulfillment and connection with other humans which like it potentially could uh if you'd had a a human-centered design approach and a better incentive structure around those kind of things then uh like it, it people will like they they blame the wrong thing Right? They, they blame the existence of the technology rather than the way that we're using the technology and they don't delve into why we're using it that way and how they can address that mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway I guess we should come back from this very uh, I would say optimistic topic <laughs> happy topic well I, know that I think it is genuinely uh, it's, it's actually the the message there is an optimistic one like the the fact that you know the existence of all this stuff does not in itself mean that it's doomed it's just like we're using it wrong yeah right? so we just have to figure out how to use it better mm. which is something that we can potentially politically do um we just have to be a a aware of the fact that the for the most part the things we're currently blaming mm -hmm. are not the source of the problem and organize coherently around actual solutions orientated approaches to, to fixing these things mm -hmm. rather than you know uh, randomly going in there with the know, ban this ban that uh, it's not gonna surveil everyone yeah. it's it, it, it's these kind of like unsubtle solutions that have missed the point of what the actual source of the problem is and how you might go about fixing yeah. it that are at least as much Sla of a threat as the problem slapping a band-aid basically on the yeah yeah, yeah. it's the and i think it, it's an interesting one because it's a challenging um appreciating the dynamics of that system 
especially when it's technology which is you know so magic looking mm -hmm. from the surface when you don't have a like an in-depth understanding of what it actually does under the hood and how it works and the dynamics that shape it and the politics of the institutions that produce it right that that's opaque to a lot of people so like you know the the political frustration at you know all this vague perceived things not working right makes a lot of sense but it seems like the result is people foiling around for something to blame mm. but we haven't kind of coalesced around a common understanding of the real source of the problem mm. uh, which no we are i think increasingly beginning to do in the public discourse like right? there's people are beginning to understand the problems uh, and start to think about what the solutions to those might look like uh, and, and you're seeing it in like less so in the top line media and political leaders but it's it's surfacing in you know what it is that the uh, political functionaries as it were are doing the people who are you know the the, the policy wonks and the uh civil servants and the alternative media organizations that there's you know people are noticing this stuff and organizing around it and the solutions to many of these problems are relatively well understood it's just translating them into political implementation mm. is very challenging under the current political system <laughs> and without popular support but as it as it gains in popular understanding i think we'll you know the, the the direction is is positive there uh, yeah. let's hope it is going to be like that <laughs> yeah oh there, there are still plenty of failure modes and i'm i'm definitely still worried but like <laughs> the, the, there's a you know a ray of hope that we can get in the right direction <laughs> um yeah but to to relate all that discussion to the to the book uh I think we can probably connect that up a little bit with the the Owen Carly consensus mechanism, right? Yeah, there are some some parallels there. No, no, absolutely. Between... That's that's the whole reason why we just started this discussion was mm. because of the consensus and the idea of how Don Carly communicate and how deep their connection is. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why, sort of, in a way, that makes their, in a way, superior to us, being able to solve certain problems before they become an issue in a way if you know what mm. i'm if i'm if you know what i'm saying i think i know what you mean yeah i like another component i think of what they have in this consensus communication thing that they do is like openness and honesty yeah well in that <laughs> it's very difficult for them to like lie or mislead in this context right they can't lie but they can stay quiet they they can stay quiet which is reasonable right and, and they do have like there's a a sense in which there is a preservation of privacy if you kind of uh uh opt out to some degree of these processes it's an interesting dynamic actually it's one that i think is slightly imperfect about the oncology consensus thing is that for the most part if you want to participate in the conversation, you have to be uh, 
you have to expose quite a lot yeah. about yourself. Yes. And you can't sort of keep some aspects of it isolated, right? There's not kind of a there's not a very good privacy architecture <laughs> in in the Owen Carly uh, uh, system, which is important for uh, effectively for, for uh, political diversity, but it also has a whole host of like the absence of privacy in uh, various kinds of network interactions creates a lot of um, liabilities and bad incentives because if you if you have access to a bunch of information about the people who use your service you now have responsibility uh for doing something with that information yeah right so as soon as you have it it creates a possibility of external pressure to use it uh which can be a problem so like uh, that is a a common structural issue of the way we currently handle data. I suspect one of the things that we will see in uh, the relatively near future is that, you know we will look back on how we handled data and the degree to which we like collected it in institutions mm-hmm. uh, as just like like what the hell were they doing? Right? They just had all this stuff like just out there and in the open, so that anyone could. Like, people are going to look back at like the the security architecture and the the privacy architecture of these systems as just being completely nuts <laughs> and creating massive liabilities for for all for everyone involved. Right? Some of the stuff that um, we're likely to move to, in my opinion, is is much more privacy focused in that it, it it can give you the information that you need and nothing else for a particular transaction right and not keep a record of who and where and when it's like this this uh, concept of um like self-sovereign identity and uh, uh related systems so essentially so for things like i don't know vaccine passports and whatnot mm-hmm. right, you can architecture that in a couple of different ways you can architecture it in a way where you have a credential that proves that you have been vaccinated according to a relevant authority um, and does nothing else. It doesn't say who you are. It doesn't say where that was authenticated. It doesn't have any connection to a, uh, like a central thing that logs that. Mm-hmm. Right? You, 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 can, you, can, you can set up a cryptographic algorithm in such a sen- in fashion that it does that. Right? You, can, you can prove without proving anything else about yourself that you have been vaccinated for example right make it very resistant to, to any kind of other attack and also mean that you don't have to check in with a centralized database to to ascertain that right you just this is a thing that's been cryptographically signed by someone who has uh, who we trust to have issued that credential and that's it right the current architecture around that is very different it tends to be we look you up with a unique identifier that's tied to your identity and a bunch of other stuff in a central database. And the fact that we look you up is logged and who looked you up is logged and all of that additional information is created. So now you have a very different situation because now you have to trust that all of that information is going to be used responsibly by the institution that now has it. That's true, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which you know, uh, for something like a vaccine passport, uh, like if you actually want to encourage everyone to to get one of those, having a having it like tied to a system that is 
technically not capable of collecting that information centrally means that anyone with any concerns about the privacy associated with it doesn't have an issue with that, right? So anyone who is uh, in your society, um, I don't know, let's say someone is uh, an illegal immigrant, but they still need to be able to prove they've been vaccinated, right? If they can do it in a decentralized fashion with a credential like that, they don't have to worry about the fact that even going to the shops and proving they've been vaccinated uh, could get them arrested and kicked out of the country, right? Yeah. Because if you have to prove your identity in that fashion, uh, you know, it, it's the it, we have this uh, you know deep challenge to to handle when it comes to what we're going to do with with data like that and the trust that we have in all these systems. No, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. No. And that, that that will um there's a likelihood that the trust will 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 get better over time, but you have to build in uh like a a, a two way component to that <laughs> you have to trust the citizenry as the government uh, as well as having requiring the the citizenry to trust the government which <laughs> which is a uh, uh, you know, a challenge given some of the things that uh, institutions have been uh, like known to get away with, right? It, there's a, these things have some give and take. Uh, yeah, it's uh, this. Yeah, it's the fact that that the problem is with the talk. Yeah, as you're saying, this, these technologies, depending on who has access to them is that's the thing i think that's the biggest crucial thing mm. who has access to them is the, always the biggest um issue but i think there's all all the you mentioned illegal immigrants but that's an issue on itself as well that sort of mm. leads to I mean, another sort of type of conversation that part of the problem that we have with this is that Collecting all of the data in this fashion exposes some of our hypocrisies and internal contradictions. Yeah. Right. So many of the things that we currently tolerate, but which are technically illegal, uh, come into sharper focus once we have access to all this information. Right. So what we actually end up having to do is come to a new political settlement that's more grounded in, in, in the real politique of, of the situation. Right. Because our current laws don't reflect what our actual norms are. Right. That they, they account for the lack of ability to enforce some of those things. And sometimes that's actually a feature and not a bug, right? The whole existence of, of the gray and black economy, like a good chunk of that in a society that has much more complete information mm -hmm. ends up having to be legal or you're in a police state, right? There's, there's no, like, we have to kind of deal with our own hypocrisy around the inconsistency of enforcement mechanisms and the, like, attitudes that we have to... Uh, what should and shouldn't be legal in a world where we can and can't enforce that, right? There's this whole, um, uh, what's that? There's a book called uh, Three Felonies a Day, I think, mm -hmm. which basically has the hypothesis that, uh, or, or makes the case that in the in the US, 
you you basically everyone commits three felony offenses a day uh which you know if if we had perfect information and convicted everyone of that like we would clearly change the laws yeah that if we actually had perfect enforcement we would have to do something structurally different because like we can't make those things line up right so there's a there's a component of that uh, which interacts substantially with the whole privacy concern. That and things like the massive asymmetries of power that are created when you centralize that kind of information and uh, uh, give it give one group of people much more leverage over it than others. Yeah, right? absolutely. That's so it's, it's a kind of we need to make a bit of a decision about what aspects of. Uh, uh, to what degree are we willing to engage with that question? Right? And to what degree are we willing to to have that information be shared and actually change the way that we we think and legislate about these things? And and much of those things should be changed. Right? That's productive. Right? Having that information exposes useful things that we can use to fix those inconsistencies in our mm. our systems. But um, there are other areas where you you actually just it it it's information of that sort is dangerous to have anyone know and or because it has with it a, 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 a power over the people about who you have that information right? and to be honest most of our like constitutional legal constructs are limits on the power of the state to do particular things right that the most, most of our fundamental rights are like in some sense limits on the power of these institutions to, to know stuff about us so a lot of that uh, it needs to be coupled to to privacy in some sense. No, I agree, but in the same time, it's what I'm thinking of now is that this is true at the moment, but like in a different matter as well. The whole idea of um, social media and the fact that some people leave mm. a, a now basically a trail of what, let's say, you know, we people change every several years. You you know, like if you encounter things you travel so you, your points of your views around the world change uh, and mm-hmm. um you know nowadays the fact is that you know a lot of in the social media where people like dig out people's history because in the mm-hmm. past when they were young and fucking stupid they would say something and now it's being dragged like you know like uh, dragged you know around um is an issue because People have mm. the right to change, yeah. and the fact. And what's that um, uh, quote from Keynes? It's like, "When the facts change, I change my mind." What do you it's do? Again, it's again. Uh, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah. So it's a uh, uh, when you get new information, you you update. Right? Yeah. You you change what you think, and or like, what was the point of getting any new information? Exactly. So that's the thing. Like people do change, and you know, like, and there's a lot of things that a lot of people I don't I don't know if they like nowadays is not accepted. You have to be good from the very beginning. Um otherwise you're just basically, you know, you're evil and you, sh- you should be completely destroyed, right? Uh I mean uh, yeah, that's kind of like <laughs> like bad human political instincts coupled with the you know panopticon record of of our lives. I mean, it's, you uh, know, like they, they don't mix well. <laughs> when like it just this is like it might sound like a silly silly example, but when Skyrim mm. came out and you have the choice 
to save Parthenox or not, the, the, the dragon on top of the, the, the mountain. Mm-hmm. And he says, what's better, to be good from the beginning or overcome evil with a great effort? Everybody from, like, most people be, like, saving it because they agreed with that. But nowadays, this whole point of view, like, completely changed. Now, this this whole debate about whether or not if you change, of course, there are things that are not acceptable. And a lot of things, you would have to do a lot of, you know, acrobatics to to um to show that you're a different person if you did something really mm-hmm. despicable but in general cases the whole idea that you no know, the fact that like there would be a let's say a history you could follow that and and people think that the people cannot change on their views like mm-hmm. it's for me is the biggest flaw of the current society in general that the fact that you know people can realize that the what they've done is wrong or what their opinions were you know not the best and they could mm-hmm. change their, their 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 beings considering if they're you know if, when they have facts and it takes time and it takes an effort um but but yeah, it's just the whole, you know, that that sort of, in a way, it sort of emphasizes that this is like the sort of this most surface level example of what you were talking about. The whole um, mm. issue with, the, you know, like the the, the society, the, the whole laws and not being able to, like us basically doing felonies every day because we just simply... Um, this is the the government 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 doesn't fall like the changes in the laws are not following up the changes in society fast enough and that sort of societal mm-hmm. like history you know like history sort of pitchfork um hunting is yeah s- it's an that uh it feels almost it, it's more like a Hmm. there's a couple of components to that right there's the kind of the social norms around like using past uh information about you to your detriment you know even dating back to like when you were a teenager and like this kind of uh like the the temporal flattening of your life into like the permanent record of what's written about you on the internet or or the record of your history on the internet that doesn't necessarily you know stuff that was in the past doesn't necessarily capture what you think now uh like i mean even like you listen to this podcast right and you you've you binge the entire thing as you're reading the book right it's take when it's been a couple years for us it might be a couple weeks for you we may have changed yeah absolutely (laughs) right uh, the same thing is true of, of many other people in many other contexts where you know you take something from a considerable time ago and you say like this defines you and your opinion on this subject uh, and rather than like re-engaging with that I mean okay it's productive to point out you thought this thing which is you know not sure that's a good thing to think about this subject like let's you know bring that up but be like what do you think about it now? 
Yeah, instead problem. of like, you thought that that means that you're an asshole. This is for all time your unchanging opinion on this matter to which we can hold you. And basically, we don't like yeah, it. Yeah, basically helps, heal, hold someone hostage to something that, you know, it's true. Like, to be honest, for us, this podcast has been going ongoing for two years now, uh, if I'm counting correctly. And yeah, pretty much. It's it's been a journey personally for me to discuss topics that previously I either never thought of or never really read upon or never really bothered about them because it never occurred to me that it's something that it doesn't affect my life but doesn't mean that it doesn't affect someone else's life. And the fact mm-hmm. that there's this loss of nowadays, the loss of the fact that one can go and check change their views check their their views and check the facts or behind their views and change their views even the next day um because mm. some new information came in and then somebody could go out and you know like in several years so if after we finish maybe in several years if we don't do this podcast anymore or we evolve in a way this podcast that's something else and somebody will go mm-hmm. back to this particular conversation and say something. Oh, Michael said this and this at the time. And it's like, yes, I did. Yeah. Because at the time I had this information and facts. And the fact is that yeah. I might have not enough all the facts and not enough knowledge about the topic. It was just my opinion yeah. that at the time maybe being informed. But nowadays I know more about the topic and we know more, have more information that I completely changed my doesn't mean that I'm the same person anymore. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there have been times where I've shifted my opinion a little bit on a subject after having like gone and reread the references <laughs> when I was writing up the timestamps. Yeah, it's, it's, no, absolutely. It, this stuff shifts. Uh, I think that's one of the things that the um, uh, one of the things the podcast medium is good at actually because it has this conversational style. It, uh, the most successful podcasts are typically of a conversational non-scripted kind of structure right it's just people having a conversation about whatever it is right and there's something about the spoken word which is somehow less permanent in in the sense um that we have about it right if it's something if something's written down it feels kind of i don't know like official and fixed in time and it, it, it but if you experience uh, reading an article feels a bit different right from from listening to a podcast so an opinion that i offer in in text might well be uh like uh subject to to greater um like holding to account than an opinion that you offer in voice, right? That, that, that certainly psychologically, that's the the way that um, I think we tend to experience text. Although I don't know that that's like evolved sufficiently for the era of Twitter, right? Because like stream of consciousness writing wasn't a thing yeah. when you had a printing presses. I think nowadays is a bit different though, because now anything, to be honest, like because in past written, um, hmm. uh, written sort of um, what's the word? Uh, not diaries. Or what I'm thinking of like the written um, evidence, not evidence. Uh, uh, yeah, sort of in in a way like the 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 follow like 
history, you know, in ancient history, like everything that we know is from, mm. re- you know, um, written um, scripts that were done, you know, at, at the time. And the fact is that those even have sort of influence of the person's attitude towards this event or type of type mm. of thing. Nowadays, this is more. Mm. There's more means of recording your opinions and also the fact of the events taking place um, mm. through those means. Like, for example, this is this maybe sounds a silly uh, example, but it sort of proves this mm-hmm. point is that when the coup uh, took place on Myanmar, right? Mm-hmm. We've learned about it, not from news, but, but at least for me, but from a basically a lady who was just doing a dance, yoga dance or something, or like fitness dance in front of hotel, and just by chance she recorded the whole you know insurrection taking place and hmm. you know and then of course the news picked up on it and then it was written down and of course be like oh this took place and stuff like that but in reality like just because of some some side event some some other means of media recorded this event um hmm. it it's now i think more like it's on par on written um uh, on written like papers and written uh, documents, mm-hmm. for at least for me, because I, it's just like it, it, it. I think it's more that we we haven't like psychologically adapted to the um to to that like collapse of of those media into being of similar cost, as it were. Yeah. Right, because it, it it like all the media we get from the past that's preserved in text and so on uh the further you go back like the more resources had to be invested in creating it and the more you know like book publishing and the printing press was for a long time very censorious as well as being very expensive right so the stuff that you can get in print that survives May have telling maybe telling quite a different story from the stuff that was being written, yeah. let alone from the stuff that was being said by people at the time. And in our era, those things are flattened, right? That which is being said and written and spoken and videoed, all have near negligible cost. Uh, so, like conventional thinking about the degree to which one should weight different media is is a bit out of whack <laughs> no absolutely i think you're absolutely right and that's that's the issue nowadays is that you can have this amount of media that overflows and allows you to see certain information but that in-depth analysis that would be required to actually think about it and you know like for example let's say historical records um, hmm. that would, for example, in the past be like a person traveling to an area and discussing the events with people and collecting information, their opinions and stuff like that, and then recording it down hmm. from a perspective of, for example, an outsider. Nowadays, you you know, you get people pulling out the smartphones and then it's like, oh, in my opinion, blah, 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 blah. blah. But in reality, like, the, as you, you know, we've talked about this, the reference point of view where basically... Your reference uh, view can be different to a person uh, across the street because, for example, you were paying attention mm. to an event where they weren't. 
and they saw something else. And that's often the problem, for example, in, politi- in the police when they were like uh, questioning. And we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I'm mentioning it is because the fact that, um, in, like, for example, in scientific writing, we mm-hmm. write something and we look into sources and it's usually, that for me is more official really specific anal- like like for you now you're saying that the, the written record because that i know takes time to do hmm. okay that's an interesting one uh, the the whole subject of the scientific literature in the modern era is uh, a, a a complicated one because like our, our current track record on a lot of like big and important and like to the interest of the public stuff has not been particularly great <laughs> at successfully communicating yes, the coherent that, I message, agree with that. right that's uh you know we got you know climate change and various aspects of food and nutrition science and all kinds of stuff about like pollution and toxins and environmental contamination all that stuff like we like we've not had a successful time communicating yeah. that to the public uh, oh, and uh, you know, vaccines and and uh, you know, pandemic measures, right? That's also not exactly gone like smoothly with respect to science communication. Yeah. Um, and of course, the inclination is to pin this all on misinformation and and the like. But in many ways, again, this is a a more subtle structural problem with the way that we actually do both the funding and the communication and publication of scientific research. Uh, rather than uh, necessarily something we should blame purely on like misinformation actors, right? If, if, if our architecture around communicating what we understand and how we understand it is not resilient to the presence of hostile actors in this space, mm. which is not a thing that we've had to deal with so much before, right? We have this problem of a broken epistemic commons and not knowing what to trust as a good reliable source of information uh i think substantially because we don't have uh we don't have a sort of ability to have a robust conversation in public about these issues in a way that's credible right we have this kind of very archaic mechanism of scientific publication where we spend several years writing up a long complicated paper in sciences that only people in our little sub-discipline can really get a handle on and then we ask our peers to confidentially review what we've written Uh, often people in whom we're in some degree of direct competition for resources and who are incentivized to find something wrong with it and then and only then might it get into the public eye and there's very little like feedback on it yeah. right it doesn't, doesn't it's not in a, a medium that's well uh formatted for communication to anyone outside of our niche right it, it doesn't doesn't do well for um like science journalists especially with the decline of economic resources for journalism mm-hmm. doing science journalism would have been getting harder anyway because of the media dynamics but it's getting harder still because of the scientific publishing dynamics uh that's 
that's just the like the communications aspect of it let alone the the research the, part of it. Uh, the research and economics yeah. yeah there's a whole other you know we have a lot of another pandora's like, box that we all have to deal with <laughs> but will not bore it you today yeah um yeah uh, well, uh, maybe at some point uh, i have a whole spiel <laughs> 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 on things we might be able to do to help fix the academic publishing yeah, industry. The, the whole, we have a whole box of we can talk about what's yeah. wrong and how we could solve it and why it's not going to change anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we should probably not go down no, that no, rabbit no, no. hole today, but maybe on another uh, maybe on another occasion. Who knows? <laughs> know. But uh, yeah, that was a particularly uh, extensive tangent. That, that's, that's, yeah, uh, <laughs> we've taken quite a long... Roll things back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, to um, circle back a little bit and relate that to the Oankali uh, communications, right? The whole thing started out because in the Oankali context, they didn't really have much choice but to be honest about yeah. what they're communicating. So they don't have some of these problems in the epistemic commons, right? They they don't have to deal so much with mis or disinformation, only with potentially a little bit of missing information from people who are not joining the consensus. But it means they have the ability to make collective decisions on good information, mm-hmm. because and also on on um, with a greater appreciation for the degree of uncertainty uh, to some degree. Although ironically, they end up being very subjectively certain about some yeah. things when it might or might not be a good idea. Some yeah aspect, yeah. Right. But yeah, so mm-hmm. coming back from this massive tangent, um, there are some topics that we've discussed. Maybe we should uh, talk about the topics we've actually discussed, not only just today, but what we discussed over the mm-hmm. last um, several episodes covering this part. Um, mm-hmm. And in a way, obviously, this time we had sort of a bit less um, topics in terms of biology, not as much as we'd had in previous um, parts, um, but for example, from physics, computing, sort of this sort of like aspect of uh, our life, we talked about analog computing devices, although I don't remember in what term mm. it was. Do you recall what it was? Um, I don't remember how exactly we got onto analog computing devices, but... Um... Hmm. Maybe it was. I mean, we talked quite a bit about analogies between biology and computation. Yeah, I think that was points. that was that that we talked about. Is just the, mm. this aspect. Um, yeah. We talked about directional speakers. Um, I'm not sure sure why it was particular <laughs> in this case, but God, it's only been a few episodes, and I can't remember <laughs> why we talked about those things. Yeah. Um, I don't remember where that came up. We talked about fusion power. That was uh, I remember about the whole ship and then you know sort of being um, uh, you know having its own power source. So that's why that was one thing we were talking about. Oh uh, yes, yeah. Um, so that, uh... We talked about subnuclear particle detection in Onkali. So that mm, and we got onto that whole thing about a neutronic fusion. Yes. And dense plasma focus. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. We mm. mentioned Audrey Tang the Taiwan's um digital minister quite a lot. Mm. Um uh, yes. Yeah, that was another one of my vaguely 
political <laughs> rant tangent sessions like we just had. yeah yeah i mean to be honest discussion <laughs> about audrey tang really uh um fits into what we were talking about today because it actually mm-hmm. relates to it yeah and yeah, but part of my optimism <laughs> uh, on those political subjects yeah. is related to some of the stuff that uh, they're innovating in in uh, Taiwanese democracy. Yeah. And uh, the final point here, you added ethics of creating beings and controlling stereotypes. Ah, yes, yes, that that was the conversation we had about whether mm. you want to create animals that enjoy being used by humans. That that was um, an interesting conversation, <laughs> to say at least. Yeah. I think that was that in the context of the the Tilio. The little, yes, uh, yes, yes. The Tilio was like enjoying Akin and basically, you know, like, mm. yeah. And the I suppose the ships and yeah. stuff as well, also in that context. Yeah, yeah. as the, the the pop cultural references that was contrasting there was uh, uh, Rick from Rick and Morty's um, butter passing robot <laughs> that is capable of experiencing existential angst yeah. for no readily apparent reason. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and you know. House elves from Harry Potter, yeah. right? Who, uh, with the exception of Dobby, seem to enjoy their state of servitude. Um, and then there's the whole uh, uh, saga where Hermione's like campaigning for their freedom, and they're like, and, just and like, they nope, want her to. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, should we campaign for their freedom? They, they seem perfectly happy about this, but like, it was probably some kind of messed up curse that made them happy about it in the first place that sounds <laughs> quite possible yeah it's quite probable um, no no that, that those, those are inter- interesting uh, topics um and then biology wise obviously we were talked about the organelle the uh, the oloi organelle that's just like a parasite mm. or symbiote in a way um yeah like uh how do we draw the line between uh, a, a mutualist or a symbiote and a, and a parasitic yeah. organism? And sometimes that's subtle. Um, you mentioned here transposons. What did we talk about transposons uh, about? I'm trying to remember when they came up. I think that might have been in a similar context about... Um, oh, it probably came up with the discussion of, of mutualism, right? Because they're uh, genetic parasites. Yes. So sequences of in- little bits of information that are effectively parasitic, but like viruses. Yeah. But you know, like baked into your genome, and they sometimes have um, been co-opted to positive functions, right? You know, transposable element promoters and stuff that are now used as regulatory features in stuff that we, yeah. you know, use for our normal biology. I'm, I was kind of talking about the 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 line between mutualism yeah. and parasitism. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, like the whole idea of biology being uh, being treated as computing, um, that we were talking about then those um, mycelium networks. I think that was the specific um, examples of we were talking about the whole idea of complex mm. systems. I think, I think the other reason that came up was um, thinking about the limits on the Onkali's ability to like design biological systems. Ah, yes. And their kind of the limits of their perceptual abilities, right? How much can they actually perceive and, and how well can they predict what will happen mm. with changing a given thing, right? Because you have all these, these complex systems where small changes small perturbations to the system can produce very large effects so you have this whole chaos theory problem of can you actually predict it um and you know all of the 
the implications of that uh, for for actually being able to do genetic engineering well without a lot of um, this, empirical work. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, it's just thinking about it, like, I don't know if we talked about it, but like the whole idea of like a protein can interact with several different proteins just because its active size just happened to, you know, allow for it and type of thing that mm-hmm. the idea that they have to have this computing power to be able to actually resolve those issues yeah mm-hmm. so how can they with what kind of resolution can they actually predict this stuff and, and to what degree are biological com- biological complex systems computationally yeah. reducible right do you do you have to actually like simulate exactly what's going to go on to know what the outcome is or are there more generalizable rules that we can use um like you know to where we're going to run up against that limit right? biological systems have uh because they're like very generalizable effectively like computer yeah. systems yeah yeah can the conventional approach of of uh or to like to what degree will we be able to successfully apply the conventional scientific approach that's worked so well for for physics and and chemistry and so mm-hmm. on to a system that has uh that may have computationally irreducible components so a, a generalized problem of of complex systems yeah. studies as well as biology yeah, yeah. Um, we looked into metamorphosis. Um, um, yeah, it was that with the whole conversation we had today about the whole, you know, T either being male or female. Um, mm. and we hadn't really related metamorphosis in the Ioan Coley context to organisms in the real world that do metamorphosis. Yeah. Um, and I think I just suppose one of the things that came up earlier was like how dramatic can that transformation be uh you know, for being a, a a male or a female or an uloi where they have quite physically distinct characteristics in the oankali and you know to compare to some real world examples butterflies for example they have a really massive metamorphosis yes right? you know, they go from they basically become liquid goo and then become something else that's just it's like a whole second developmental process, yeah. yeah. Like everything, you know, from from the wings to the digestive tract to the mouth parts to the eyes. It's like complete new set of developmental biology stuff, which is fascinating in and of itself, yeah. right? The two basically completely different developmental programs with very different starting points, and yeah, really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, of course, we talked about things that um at the time uh when. Um, Akin man, uh, met the Kjacht and the whole pheromone situation and the effect, you know, like the whole idea with the sex and the whole pheromones and, you know, uh, consent and all this directed, this conversation went on a lot of branches of this call, uh, of yes. this topic. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't actually really talk much about the biology of pheromones. No, no, we haven't talked <laughs> we specifically, kind of, but usual, just in general, like in, in general, we've talked about it. Um, hmm. Yeah, we talked about, you wrote about the whole communi- communication and the fact that they resurrected the language. That that was a topic that we've spoke about and that was really pretty crazy uh, idea that, you know, you can resurrect a language, how you pronounce and speak and stuff like that simply because there's necessity for it because it's written somewhere in your genes mm. yeah and, and the capacity they had to resurrect that language and, and the fact that they kind of had to um, 
like what the implications of that are for their ability to communicate with one another, right? The the way that the constraints that language place on how we can communicate mm. versus the way the Owen Carly natively communicate. And we had the whole analogy again to computer stuff there with like the Owen Carly direct communication is almost like you know, they can send one another like binary compatible files yeah. to to run the same code on a different person's brain whereas uh with spoken language we have to serialize everything into a, a higher level abstract representation and then recompile it into something that may or may not run quite mm-hmm. the same on the other person's brain yeah absolutely yeah and then we talked about incest that that was um just in general interesting topic uh, and um and finally sort of we discussed about the mirror hand experiment why did we talk about this um i'm trying to remember what that was uh hmm. something about perception of your your body or like body image the, the whole ability to trick you into i don't remember i need to, i would have to check but yeah this is one yeah. of the topics we've talked about it but everyone as you can hear like we've th- did those episodes a long time ago because some of these topics were just before before christmas we've recorded like last year and early in december and none of this mm. tells us anything <laughs> yeah we, we went back through our, our show notes and pulled out the stuff that looked interesting that we talked about yeah and then, uh... didn't check why we talked about it that's nice <laughs> well done to us <laughs> But yeah, we've no, talked so, about yeah. a lot of Test stuff, and we, even though there was this ch- this part, part three, Chkak was um, <clears throat> short, it still gave us a plentiful of things to discuss about. And to be honest, half of it, I would say, probably is a lot of off-tangent discussion, like today. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, but I'd like... Uh, the the fact that we can have these tangential discussions with this material as a seed, yeah. I think, speaks well of this material as a Absolutely. seed. Absolutely, right? It, it's a there's a, a a lot of richness in there. Uh, and okay, yeah, we 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 bring a whole bunch of additional contextual and interpretive lens to to the whole thing. But uh, you know, that's that's the fun part, mm. right? That's, <laughs> that's the, it, if if we were just reading the book, then this wouldn't this would be an audio book. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm. But yeah, it's mm. it's been an interesting journey. We've learned a lot, and then now the consensus is that yeah, Akin has to has to do what he planned originally. But now, where do we go from there? From here? Hmm, yeah. So we've had kind of a a coming of age arc for Akin, yeah. and we had a a childhood trauma and now we have a maturing into an adult and deciding to take on a particular project or or, a monumental um, task i would say of creating a planet for humanity to survive on yeah and uh, I, I said deciding, but is realizing that he's going to do this, possibly having decided to, but possibly having been engineered yeah. into doing it yeah <laughs> Uh, no, but there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of free will determinism subtext yeah. in this. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. And on that note, do we go to chapter one prediction of the part four home? Yes. So, what what are you expecting to happen next in at the beginning uh, of this part? So, for at least for the next beginning of the part, um, we'll definitely be going to be back on Earth, 
and you know the fact that you know Akin back from after I don't know actually a year maybe passed on the Ankali ship you know Akin being back on the on the surface of the chaotic planet that the Earth is. Um, it's mm-hmm. time to you know it's for for him it's time to prepare to make the first takes first steps to for the um, human humanity to preserve to i.e. going to villages being saying hi guys do you want your own planet do you want to survive as humans and not not human on Kali mm-hmm. fine but you can do it on a different planet and that's that's gonna i i'm mm. sure that's gonna be an interesting uh aspect and i'm sure there will be some who will want and some who will be like i'll die on this planet because they're stubborn as hell and that's the way humanity is mm-hmm. and i guess you know that's that's also acceptable yeah uh, that, that that seems like an interesting challenge right it's uh <laughs> the 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 added component of you can still you know keep humans going but you have to do it on another planet, yeah. right? you've you've been kicked out of your home world. We're taking that, and but that's the thing. You've got this. Rock. I'm sure that they will ask him like, "Why cannot be an Earth?" And then I can be like, "Well, mm-hmm. because it's going to be stripped completely naked." Yeah, which I don't get. I honestly don't get. Like they are going to use the whole planet, right? So you're gonna go like, "Oh, let's mm-hmm. use Mars." It's like, why not just re like, okay, prepare some sort of um. Mars and then also work on Earth as well to repopulate Earth. Like, you could do Terraform two planets. But I mean, it's like Earth has finite resources, right? I it's, mean, if they're gonna pull everything out of it, then yes, absolutely, you know. Yeah. Even like if they're not gonna leave even the iron core inside, then well, then. Oh, I suppose it depends how useful they find those minerals, right? Yeah. It's a, uh, but the Oankali. Uh, you know they're a spacefaring species right they they will get through all those resources and you know reform them into something that's useful to them and they, they seem perfectly happy to just be out there in the vacuum in their big living ships as long as they can get some some energy input presumably from some suns every now yeah. and then what do they need a planet for yeah right it's just a but, big blob of <laughs> you know chemical resources yeah. But yeah, so I think this is what's going to happen. This is going to be this this last part is going to be the not preparation, but more of like Akin trying to convince as many humans as possible about their so that they have choice of survival on a different planet, mm. and that's where the chapters the 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 book is gonna go, and that's. I still think, going back to our other predict- like old predictions, that there's going to be some sort of civil war, mm-hmm. because there will okay. be people who refuse to do this, and it's going to be tough for some people to accept that, and they will, mm-hmm. no, rather to rather to die on the planet than be moved around like unwanted. <laughs> like tenants or something mm-hmm. yeah and yeah, we have kind of a uh, uh we've got a, a human reservation over here that you can come live on and people are going to object to that absolutely <laughs> they will definitely object to that yeah hmm. okay so yeah and that uh, yeah that leaves us with the uh, 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 I think enough of a prediction to get started. Yeah, with. absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, everyone, thank you very much for listening today. This was 
pretty long uh, episode considering the fact that we went oh, off yeah. tangent for quite a while but thank you very much everyone for listening if you want to find all the other places we upload our podcast you can go to our website zinothesis.com um, I was Michael Glinka I was Rich Langton bye Yeah, this was like almost two hours.